Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Guido Ruggiero, Professor of History and Cooper Fellow of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Miami, to talk about his new book, Love and Sex in the Time of the Plague, a Decameron Renaissance, out 2021 with Harvard University Press. Hello, Guido. How are you? Hi, John. It's good to see you again. Oh, wonderful. And where are you? <laughs> where I digitally see you. Where are you? Are you in a warm Miami today? I'm in a hot and humid Miami, or the big soggy, as we call it. <laughs> oh, yikes. We've got the full soggy today, folks. So. Ah, far from your beloved uh, Treviso, where it's quite a bit nicer. Right. Than, yeah. Ah, well. All right. So, and speaking of Treviso or, or its neighbor, Venice, that's where your intellectual story starts, right? Um, as you, you know, with your first publication, it's 1980, I think, Violence and Early Renaissance Venice. And uh, that's actually where a lot of your, your early career takes place. We've got The Boundaries of Eros, Sex, Crime, and Sexuality in Renaissance Venice, which is 89, Binding Passions, Tales of Magic and Power, Magic, Marriage, and Power from the End of the Renaissance which came out in 1993 and then radically changed my life um, as well. And a series of volumes edited with Ed Muir that made some outstanding Italian scholarship available to the English speaking world and really did a lot to raise the profile of micro history in that said English speaking world. But then I see this shift right around the turn of the millennium, really, when you seem to leave Venice and her archives behind a bit um, five Comedies from the Italian Renaissance, which you edited and translated with Laura Gianetti, and Machiavelli in Love, Sex, Self, and Society, um, and the New Italian Renaissance. They seem bigger and broader, like these a- attempts really to get at the zeitgeist of the entire era in a new way. Is that a fair characterization? It's a very kind characterization. Uh, I hope I, I, it is true. I'm not sure that everybody thinks that way, but I hope was the change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's these much bigger, bigger questions. It's, and it's not that you're what the archival work is incredibly important, right? But it feels like you've stepped back a little. Um, so then what happens here? What made you ta- decide to tackle the Decameron? Um, well, actually, the one book that you didn't mention is uh, the big book on the Italian Renaissance, which I unwisely accepted the offer to write from Cambridge, which, uh, you know, I've been very happy with my kind of narrower micro historical approach to things. And I had been broadening out a bit, but when Cambridge came and asked me to write a, a general rethinking of the Italian Renaissance, you know, my first response is no way. <laughs> I'm not Denial yet. I, I might be early, but it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Uh, but then Blackwell, a week later, 
wrote me and asked me, um, would you like to do a general book on the Italian Renaissance? And, you know, from somebody who's not studied much Renaissance astrology, you know, but had a vague kind of sense of what it implied, began to think, gee, the stars are realigning and maybe I ought to try something like a big book. So, um, but I had never written anything like that. I had no real model that I felt comfortable with. All the big books I'd seen, I kind of disparaged because they were too broad, they were too general. They forgot all the things that were really important that you wanted to talk about, the little people, the everyday life and things like that. Uh, So I said, well, okay, then the thing to do is to do it. If you don't like what other people have done, do it. Um, And so Cambridge was expecting, I think I promised a 300 page book, 300 pound, 300 page, (laughs) uh, which turned out to be 300 pounds. It was 1,700 pages in the first manuscript, and Cambridge freaked out. Uh, And I cut it down to 1,000 pages, which came out 600 pages in print. And what I did in that book was I tried to use the narrative technique in a different way, telling stories, which I had done in the Machiavellian Love book which I'd done a lot in the Binding Passions book based on archival documents. So in that big book, I used a lot of stuff from literature, retelling the stories, but analyzing those retellings to make the broader picture, the the overview of the Italian Renaissance that I was trying to create. and I think it works pretty well. You know, it, it's really a lot of sto- little stories that go together into a big rethinking. Having finished that, I realized I'd relied a lot on the Decameron, especially for the first half of that book. And I thought, you know, the one problem is when you're trying to get the whole sweep of the Italian Renaissance, uh, you can't really take full advantage of the richness of those stories that you use, those little narratives. You make it work for the big book. You do as well as you can, but you're not really doing justice to them. So on the one hand, I wanted to do something that did more justice to the kind of literature, narrative things that I had used. On the other hand, as you know, I've submitted every class that I've taught general class on the Italian Renaissance to read the, the Boccaccio's Decameron with me. And over, let's say, more than four decades, okay, just... Okay, we'll sake, just call it that. For the sake of secrecy, as much about how old I really am. Um, you know, uh, I've had... Two, Tremendous experience with these students, tremendous interchange of ideas. I'd learned so much from them, you know, um, and, and I felt like, a, you know, late in my career, it was time to do a book that also recognized that and took advantage of that. So here I am thinking, I want something more focused where I can do more with literary tales and narrative of stories and what they tell you about history. 
Uh, and I wanted something that would allow me to also, in a way, pay tribute to the discussion that I've been having for so long with my students. So that's why I decided to write the book. In some ways, it's going back to microhistory. It's going back to dealing with the big themes that I dealt with in the first half of the Renaissance Rethinking book uh, that I did for Cambridge in uh, 14, 2014. Uh, it's going back to those things, but looking at them from the perspective of one literary work um, and a literary tradition, the, the novella tradition of short stories from the Italian Renaissance. Now, there's a lot more behind that yet, but I've kind of gone on long about it. No, that's a. This is an interesting idea that this this is microhistory. That you know the the Decameron are little stories, right? Microhistory, of course they are, but this is a microhistory. Why the Decameron specifically? So the Decameron is it your experience with it, or is it just the best possible source? Do you think? Yeah, um, not the best possible source for sure. It's a really complicated and difficult source. Uh, I think I mentioned back even when you studied with me light years ago that if you're going to use literature for doing history perhaps the best literature is a really bad literature the literature that nobody reads anymore because it has no resonances with the modern culture it's so dead that it's really stuck in the time when it was written and as a historian what you want is what's from that time you don't want things people can say, oh, I recognize that. We did that last week, you know, uh, when we went out for a date or something like that. Um, because almost always they're misreading. They're, they're, they're acronistically reading in their date from last week. So my original way back when, when I was first thinking about these kinds of things was good literature, great literature, you really shouldn't use at all. You should read find really junky things. And I'd been looking at some junky things, to be honest. Uh, the problem with this, junky things are no fun. And um, so I had the excuse of my students, you know, and those discussions, which were so good. Um, and then the other thing that was the excuse, and I, th and I think a real driving factor in using the Decameron is it's a hundred stories. There's actually a, another story in there. So it's 101, but we'll just say a hundred. It's a hundred stories all re collected and retold by Boccaccio and refashioned by him uh, to speak to his time. Okay. Now, I had done earlier the book Binding Passions, which you said was important for you. You didn't say whether important good or important bad. <laughs> we'll that. see. Yeah, I'll think of it in one way, and you can think of it whatever way you want. Okay. But there, what I did was I read Inquisition documents, a form of criminal documents, uh, which were serial, repeating over and over again telling similar tales over and over again. And I read them against the grain for what went beyond, you might say, the script, what went beyond the repeating part, 
to the details where somebody is testifying. You know, I was sitting on the street corner, you know, with my finger in my nose, you know, drinking a cup of wine. And this guy walked by and said such and such. You know, it's not really the storyline of the criminal document. It's that kind of thing outside the script that's telling people sit on the, you know, they're at the bar, they're sitting there, they're drinking, they're discussing, you know, and maybe what they're discussing, although you have to be careful. But basically what you're doing is you're reading repetitive texts over and over again and pulling out what goes against the script and you assume is speaking to the culture of the day uh, or to the, in the case of the Inquisition, to the clerics who are listening to this testimony. Uh, Okay. So I said, why can't I do that with something like the Decameron, where I have a hundred tales that have been refashioned, you know, to make sense to the time in which they're uh, being written down after the plague in Florence, the second half of the 14th century. Why can't I try the same thing there? Uh, Not dealing with what, and not being so, of course, I'm curious about what Boccaccio was saying and wants to say. But he's dead, you know. For him, for a minute now, yeah. Yeah, fortunately for him, because he's been so manhandled by critics, you know, for six or seven hundred, how many? Almost seven hundred years. Yeah. So he's been, he's had his time. Uh, You know, let's leave him a bit in the grave and talk about how uh, the stories that he's refashioned can make sense to people who are hearing them or reading them in the second half of the 14th century. In other words, how they speak about the culture those people were living in. Um, So how can you make, for example, how can you make adultery in a very patriarchal society attractive and an adulterous and attractive character? What kind of gymnastics do you need to do within that culture to make us that story uh, heard? Or uh, what do you do, for example, when you're talking about a powerful prince and his ability to control his society? Uh, how are people going to hear that in a place like Florence where they're surrounded by princes who they call tyrants, you know, one man evil rule who are threatening Florence. How, how, how do you convey that kind of a person to that culture? What do you, you know, what, what do you make of it? Um, and to me, that seemed, you know, fascinating and very similar to what I'd done with uh, the Inquisition documents except richer for some of the things that I had become more interested in, like emotions and uh, something that I'd always been interested in, like the history of sexuality, which is never in any document described in a straightforward way. So uh, you're, look- you're looking at you know, any kind of source that you can you know, compare with other sources to pull something out that makes sense and, and explains the very, very different 
sexual world that you encounter in uh, the Italian Renaissance or pre-modern world, but wherever, whenever. So it, this makes perfect sense to me. This, I really get this now. I, I mean, it was, it was surprising when I, when this came across my, uh, my desk, I'm like, we're, we're, we're in Florence now. What are we doing in Florence? Um, but I, I, I see it also. I mean, you doing one of the most widely read, you know, this is just a Ruggiero book that focuses on something this popular just feels weird, but it's great. I, I enjoyed it. Obviously I enjoyed it. Um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted to talk to you if I hadn't. Um, <laughs> I'm also an easy sell where you're concerned. Um, okay. But so how much, how much were the voices of your d- generations of students like be in your head? Cause I taught the Decameron uh, re- repeatedly and the students love it, but they, it's, it's, they love the stuff that they recognize um, from what they did last weekend. Yeah. And, and those, and those conversations, yeah, that's often where they start, where they end up can be some very curious places. I mean, the very first time, and I referred to this, I think someplace in the introduction, maybe in a footnote or in the introduction, I don't remember, but the very first time, I talked about one of my favorite stories, which is only like three pages in the Decameron, the story of Rustico and Alebeck and their discovery of true Christian religion. Um, <laughs> it, it occurred because I promised my first class, the first class that I taught on the Italian Renaissance, we'd had a discussion and I kept saying, you know, this is about love. And they kept saying, no, it's about lust. And I kept saying, no, it's about love. Look at this, look at this, look at that. No, it's about lust. And they'd say, look at this and look at that. And so finally I said at the end of the class, lust had really won out. If we took a vote, you know, the professor was wrong and the students were right. Uh, And I said, okay, next time I'm going to do a lecture strictly on love and the Decameron. And I'm going to show you that love is really what it's about. You know, and so there followed a kind of sleepless night when I realized I didn't get the biggest idea how I was going to prove. I'd already heard all their arguments and I used all the arguments I thought I had. uh, And I hadn't won already. So how am I going to do a lecture in one day? You know, when you're first teaching, that's the natural order of things. How am I going to do that one day and change their minds? And then I thought of the Rustico and Alebeck story. And it seems to be about lust because Rustico is this uh, monk who takes advantage of this young girl who's seeking, this young pagan girl who's seeking the meaning of Christianity. and there is a lot of lust in there, you know, which makes it a good story to work with, but it's only his, you know, because she's tricked into believing that she's serving God. And in fact, if you look closely at those through three pages, in many ways, it's about the basic belief that love is really what matters and what makes uh, Christianity a good religion and what makes our world 14th century 
Florence after the plague, a possible world that could be good. Okay. So I did this hour and 15 minute brilliant lecture, three pages where I, you know, I just turned the whole world on its head for those students. And I remember them kind of sitting there kind of dazed. <laughs> I'm not sure it really worked. But I thought it was great. I thought it was the great, greatest thing since sliced bread and that I proved my case. And the class actually went much better after that, so I don't know. Um, I should, however, in the name of factual reporting, I should point out that there was a student in that class who I've main, maintained com contact with. She actually went on and got a PhD with me, uh, became a professional historian, wrote six books, became president of the American Historical Association. She, you can survive my classes, Yana. You, you're another expert. Um, and so I told her the story and I said, you know, you heard that first lecture. What do you think about it? She said, you know, I don't remember a word of it. I don't, rem I don't even remember it. <laughs> so, so much. It was a great lecture as far as my fantasies were concerned. Uh, and um, That's proof. It mattered to her. She became a historian. There we go. Right. Let's go with that. <laughs> she became a great historian despite. <laughs> <laughs> or because she quickly forgot that lecture. But nonetheless, um, yeah, it was that kind of a relationship with students over and over again where we discuss these, where we go beyond the date of, say, last week or you know, the little, th you know, the male showing how masculine they really are and the girls in the class should recognize it or the girls being correctly, you know, unreceptive to that little dynamics that you try not to have happen, but that get going anyhow. Uh, despite all that, they open the way into deeper understandings. Um, all right. Um, okay. So, so how much is then the Decameron about love? How important is love in this book and in your book and your take on this book? If you think, yes, I'm, I'm very interested in the relationship between love and sex and the idea that they go together in the Italian Renaissance. So uh, while in some ways I'm more interested in sex, um, as I've worked on the issue, I see that they go together so much in the way the culture works that love becomes important. And of course, what strikes me about love in the Decameron and what I saw in the archives too, where love is talked about is on the one hand, how some aspects of it seem like eternal topoi, you know, things that are always there, but that other aspects are so glaringly culture specific. So very, very different. Uh, and, that kind of interpretive 
problem interests me. How, when you're looking at it from the past, do you separate out kind of long-term givens that are coming through uh, and what are things specific to that culture? Um, so, you know, if you look at the book, there's an awful lot on violence, a lot of violence in there and a lot of quite troubling violence that troubles modern critics, um, understandably. Um, and to see how the stories were heard at the time, which is what I'm trying to do, how they fit into the culture of the time, you have to re-examine that relationship between love and violence. Uh, so that actually became more of a theme in the book than I originally anticipated. Um, and perhaps more because it's the most troubling thing you see. But right from the start, you know, I'd come into it impressed with the idea that uh, love was very different. And, and, and looking at it as a kind of group of emotions uh, could be very revealing about how society worked not just at the level of interpersonal relationships, but also at the level of bigger solidarities and, and even politics and things like that, which people usually say are in two different worlds, but which I'd already played with in the Machiavellian love book, you know, to try and show that it's unwise to kind of see them as they're separate in some ways, but they intersect in so many ways that, uh, it's unwise to discount one for the other, as historians have traditionally done. Politics are one thing, love and sex are another thing, and they're two different fields. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder how much that is a fields the way we set up our fields, like the way we specialize. Like you can't you can't study the both of them, right? That's not how we do it. But uh, there's also the long shadow of the public and private as well that we have to wrestle with. Right, which if you look closely, you'll see I've been arguing against since at least the Machiavellian love book, showing that you know, kind of modern distinction that doesn't really doesn't really apply very well in the Renaissance. No, and, um, I mean, that was definitely a theme of the Renaissance classes. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Long, long ago. Uh, once again, we won't discuss how long ago, but long, long ago. So can you tell me, can can you tell us, um, how do we understand love? What is it? You want the quick answer? Sure. Well, I mean, we've got time. However, what do you think? No, I can't tell you. <laughs> Fair. I have okay. no idea. How you and how people understand love. I'm not even sure how I understand it. You know, I defend that kind of in the book by pointing out that I think it was Google did a survey of what the most asked question of Google was back in, I think, 19, six, uh, 2016 or 2015. And the number one answer by far was, what is love? You know, um, but and if you think, as I do, and I think it's clear that 
the idea of what love is changes over time dramatically. That's an even harder question to answer that you've asked. Uh, a really cool question of your old professor. But anyhow, what I, you know, what I, and so obviously, though, you can't get away without suggesting something. And in the book, what I try and do is give people a range of the emotions associated with love and the social implications of love. And, uh, but basically what I argue is that, you know, there's a shifting set of emotions. Love is a kind of grouping principle that groups a set, a discourse of emotions, you know, not tightly structured, not something that you can take as in stone, but, you know, a discussion of emotions that uh, is seen as swirling around it. So extreme violence, which we see today as very troubling. And when we see it associated, we, see, we do see it often associated with uh, the deranged lovers who kill their kill their wives or when they leave them or, you know, uh, it's mainly men, but uh, it's social violence, but also we kind of, we love those stories about um, couples that make each other worse, like your Bonnie and Clyde's as well. Right. We love that, like that kind of violence and love together. Exactly. So, but it's always outside the, uh, arms, which, you know, um, whereas, you know, what's troubling reading texts from the Renaissance is it's inside the norms. Um, it's uh, one of the story, one of the most troubling stories for modern feminists. And, you know, I'm not a woman, so I can't be a feminist is my vision. But I can be a fun, I can be a fellow traveler, okay. I see myself as, with all my limitations, as as a quite concerned fellow traveler, especially today. But uh, so I can see why feminists are really troubled by the Chimon story, because just to quickly do a reprise, leaving out some of the crucial elements, but just to give you a sense. Uh, Chimon falls in love with this woman with a really strange name, Ephigima. I can't even pronounce it. Um, so, uh, and it's never really clear whether she loves him or not. But he courts her, and her family says, no, she's already committed to somebody else. Okay? Uh So she's sent, he learns that she's going to be sent off finally. The family's going to go ahead and marry her to somebody else who she's never met. So we don't really know where she stands love-wise. But she does, she has been courted by this guy who's really changed himself dramatically to win her love. Okay. Uh, so what does he do? He organizes a band of his friends. He rents a boat, 
He intercepts the boat. He kills part of the people on the boat and takes her captive. And she's crying because she's being carried off and blah, blah, blah. Uh, The story is getting too long. But anyhow, quickly, quickly they're blown by a storm to the shore uh, where it turns out the people who had been carrying this woman to her husband actually it was their shore where they were. They recapture the girl, throw our guy and Shimone in jail. Okay. It's going to rot forever there. But through a nice turn of the plot, all of a sudden the guy that's put him in jail, the, the police officer finds out that the girl he loves is also going to be married that same day in the same ceremony to the guy that Shimone's love is going to be married to. Okay. So they get together. They, what do they decide? We will arm each other. We'll go and kill them all and carry off the women. Okay. So we get more murders, more bloodshed, more crying women being carried off. And then the story ends. They finally marry as they should and live happily ever after. And I can see, I can see your response. <laughs> what? Is this, yeah. Is this a happy ending or is this a bad ending? Has it, are we upset about this violence about all these people killed, or are we comfortable with it? Uh, as the story seems to say, we should be. Okay. Uh, and I've left out a lot of the details that make it more. Yeah. Well, everyone should read the Decameron. We, we don't, you know, everyone should go read this book. The story, you know, the story is a story that you see repeated over and over again in the archives. People interfering violently with the plans of parents who are going to marry people to someone they don't want to be married to and break up a, a love affair that was ongoing. And the lover uses violence to do that. And the courts say, you shouldn't have done that. Here's a little slap on your wrist, but you love each other, live happily ever after and go away. Or or whatever, each other, but go away and make sure that somebody pays for your children. Right, right. And live, get married and and do what you want. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it makes sense when you know that broader context, the violence. If you read the violence from a 20th century perspective, the story doesn't make any sense. It does, you know, uh, it does, it doesn't work. And it seems like, why, why have they set this Chimone up to be a hero when he's such a, such a nasty, violent person, you know, but being violent in the name of love in certain contexts in that made sense and was perfectly, perfectly uh, acceptable. Yeah. I mean, transgressive enough to want to talk about, but but plays out all the time and absolutely uh, he is the hero of this story right like you can be a, a violent man for the right reasons which is not something that's going to make a lot of sense but 
to a 20th century or 21st century audience. But that's kind of the point, right? When we're reading these old things, these things is to figure out what doesn't make sense to us, right? Where are these slippages? Yeah, exactly. That And that takes us back to how you read this kind of documentation, which is the stories, the funny stories that aren't funny, you know, uh, you know, you don't laugh. They don't seem right. Uh, or, you know, over and over again, the little things that, uh, Ring along uh, to us. Yeah, and so many things. There's so many things that aren't. Hmm? One important thing to say, however, that I say to my students over and over again, and that is uh, you want to understand it in the context of the time, but you also want to remember that you live in the 21st century and you need to be true to the context of your time. So, on the other hand, on the one hand, we want to understand how Chimone functions. On the other hand, we want to say, from our cultural perspective, that violence is wrong. You know, that's violence you know, that we, we don't want anymore. In fact, in some ways, a kind of violence that uh, I think if we look behind and begin to talk about what Boccaccio was thinking, which I'm not supposed to do, but according to myself, uh, if we, I think Boccaccio was quite concerned about these kinds of levels of violence. And as you're rebuilding the society after the plague, what you might do to rebuild it better in terms of love and sexuality uh, that would lower the level of violence in society. And because there's something very strange, which modern readers don't, see because it isn't strange from a modern perspective but very strange from uh, an early italian renaissance perspective uh, in the stories and that is this vision of marriage for love Uh, you know we i think our vision of marriage and love has changed really dramatically uh, over the last half century or so, but then I don't know. I, you know, that's because we've lived through it. Maybe that I think it's been dramatic. But um, we once thought that love and marriage went together kind of automatically. If you love somebody, you marry them. You know, kind of. Right. Uh, and if you were married to someone, you loved them at least yeah. at one point. Yeah. Maybe that's less true. <laughs> <laughs> The modern world, but anyway, no, seriously, um, yeah, those two things—love and marriage—you know, as the old song goes, go together like a horse carriage or whatever. Um, you know, so you, when you see that in the uh, Boccaccio stories, that so many of them wind to a happy ending with a marriage, you say, "Ah, oh, hmm, okay." You know, that's nothing. That's nothing new. That's what's supposed to happen in these stories. But it's not. It's not. Marriage was not for love. This is a very, very radical idea that Boccaccio is pushing. Another reason why I, I wanted to do more with love uh, in this book. Uh, you know, he's going against the grain. Uh, his contemporaries would say, most of them, you might be able to feel some affection for your wife, but you certainly wouldn't love her. Love is free. 
marriage is bound. You're bound in marriage. Uh, and you're bound by other people, you know, who stick you in this relationship. And then we could go on about age of marriage and things like that. I mean, what is, what is these marriages where you've got a 13-year-old girl who has to be married immediately by the values of the time to a man who's been waiting until he got his wealth from his father so that he would be well enough off to get married, meaning he's probably 29 or 30 or a little older. You've got 13 and 30. You've got somebody with no life experience, no sexual experience with somebody who hasn't been awaiting around until he was 30 to have sexual experience. What, you know, what is that relationship? You know, why would you ever expect that that relationship would be loving? So to find all of a sudden these stories going back to marriage, uh, you know, it's something really radically different uh, um, for the time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an... um... Yeah, it's and this is one of these places in in your in your book and your te- your read of Boccaccio that was that just um, brings up these whole new ideas, right? I'm thinking about Boccaccio in a new way, and right? I'm going to think about what, how I might how do I make sense of Boccaccio now? And it's um, it's one of the really interesting points um, of the book. And then so the love, the way love interacts with marriage, the way love interacts with violence, and the way love interacts with sex, right? And and sex and violence and sex and marriage. Um, and w- the whole picture is really volatile. <laughs> it feels very volatile, which makes sense considering when, you know, when this is, when, when it's written, like the, it's period. So really you're telling us a good deal also about the Renaissance more broadly with your re- reading of Boccaccio, yeah? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I see it as kind of a micro history that covers the same story that I told in the big Renaissance book, but with this kind of focus on tales. So more interesting, perhaps more readable, uh, but you're getting the same big story uh, that was in, in, in the bigger book in the bigger, more boring book. <laughs> <laughs> well, important book, huge book. Um, so it's this really transformative, really um, volatile time. Um, and Florence is a place where this is really going to play out, is playing out so clearly. It's a really exciting time because everything is up for grabs, you know, uh, after the plague. I mean, in part, you know, with parallels with today, There was what people were talking about today was we'll return to a new normal. You may have noticed that that language has kind of been forgotten. Uh, uh, We're still trying to figure out what we're going to go ahead to. uh, A lot of it doesn't look too good, actually, but I don't think it's uh, clear. It's it's a a time of turmoil where we're headed uh, in part because of the much easier plague, the COVID that we went through. But Boccaccio's situation, and he consciously 
you know, calls the attention of the reader to it is that we've just been through a major devastating challenge in the term of the plague to everything, to the basic social order of our society that goes, you know, and interestingly, he draws out one of the things that most troubled him about the plague was husbands deserted their wives, you know, fathers and mothers deserted their children. You know, this was so disruptive that it undercut the most basic bonds of society. And those were bonds of affection and love, ultimately, that he's drawing out. So uh, here's a response to that situation. Here's a way that we can, should deal with it. Um, And, you know, um, perhaps demoting the level of violence in love is is one response. Um, there's a whole there's a whole chapter on death and mourning in the book uh, with Elizabeth de Messina. Uh, for those who are favors of modern Gaulish, Gaulish literature, um, begins with a nice chopped off head and a grown basil in the head, which, yeah, could be the start of any good modern 20th century movie, uh, 21st century, but uh, goes different places. And in the end, uh, I argue that it's also speaking about love uh, and sense of self and how you, sur- you know, how you might survive the plague, how you might sur- survive the mourning aftermath, the mourning and suffering aftermath of the plague. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that was a fun story to track down, because I was hoping there was some magic involved. You know, this woman planting beans in a head seemed to me you know, that there was some kind of reference to contemporary magic uh, and or some or some religious message. I found lots of maybe maybes. That's kind of fun of that chapter. It's kind of a, uh, a mystery story. You know, here's a clue. What does this clue tell us? Maybe, but not quite. You know, again, maybe, but not quite. Uh, and finally, in the end, I end up saying, well, you know, somebody said a pipe is just a pipe in the end, you know, the, the famous line. So maybe a head growing basil is just a head with basil growing in it to cover the smell of the rotting head. Um, and the real message seems to, the real message seems to be mourning destroys you. You know, if, if you just... If you focus on lost love and mourning, uh, it's essentially killing yourself. Um, which if, I'm not sure if that's what Boccaccio was trying to say, but if he was trying to say that, it seemed like something very useful and very apropos of the situation that his readers were in, with you know half to two thirds of the population dying off in the plague. Florence went from 100,000 people to 40,000 in a year. 
So um, incomprehensible, incomprehensible and, numbers. And our COVID, with all the disruption it's caused, seems like a, a blip, you know, by comparison. Yeah. Yeah, not that bad. But um, the idea that if you if you languish in mourning, um, you're killing yourself is still quite a good message right now, right? That is something that seems really relatable um, as we look at around our world. And uh, possibly where we can wrap this up, I have taken up so much of your time, and I know you've got a big day ahead. Um, so I just have one more question. What's next? What are you working on? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> As usual, I and you, I think you will remember this. I have three or four things that I'm working on, and we'd be sure. another hour. Uh, <laughs> for me, the big problem is it takes about six or seven years to really pull it all together and make a book. And I don't know what I want to give the next next six or seven years of my life to. I've got about 500 pages of notes on a 16th century. Uh, writer of short stories called Ben Dallow. Uh, and, and he's unlike Boccaccio, who can be read as kind of frolicking and, you know, laughing, although some people don't see him that way at all. Uh, ben Dallow is definitely sour and depressed and with a, a very negative view on the world around him except for his place in it, you know, which is correctly on the top. <laughs> but otherwise, the rest of the world is really screwed up. Um, so like I say, I've got a good deal of this written, but I don't, I've fallen out of love with Bondello. I mean, he's too pessimistic, too dark and negative. And his view on emotions is too negative. So I probably won't. I'll probably just leave those notes to somebody else and um, do something else. I don't know what. I've got another book. I've got another book, two thirds written on a treasure hunt, a micro study. So I might finish that. Uh, I might. I just don't that know. That sounds really fun. Yeah, all right. Well, it's yeah. okay. I mean, you've got to, right? You're going to retire. Got a big change. Good, you know. The world's your oyster at this point. <laughs> I'm glad you think that. Uh, let, let's see. What, let's see if the oyster has pearls in it, or if it's just got fish poisoning. You know. We'll yeah. Canal, canal dirt going on. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sure there'll be. I'm sure there will be pearls. All right. Um, thank you so very much, Professor Guido Ruggiero, um, and my listeners, Love and Sex in the Time of Plague, a Decameron Renaissance. You want to read this book, so uh, click the link on our website. All right, and uh, thanks very much, Guido. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you. you you're a great interviewer. You let me run. I, I'm hoping now you're going to be a good editor and save me. <laughs> You're the best. Oh, yeah. All right. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, Cara. Thanks so much. And we'll see you in Venice. Absolutely.